Well, welcome to a nice warm season. And then it's going to only get like 70, but it was nice. Last night, I felt bad for you people in Quartz Hill because it was windy where we were. I can imagine it was like a hurricane out there because, oh my goodness, it was, it, but it was nice. The trees were blowing. Um, the neighbor's kids stopped screaming and went inside. So it was a nice, it was a nice evening. Um, all right, men, I got a public service announcement for you. So you can't say no one, you know, you didn't know, no one ever told you, but next week is Mother's Day. Mother's Day, be ready for it. And I recommend everyone take Jim's lead. This was, this was good. I can tell you, I can share it because he did it already and Nicole knows, but he went and got her a larger TV. <laughs> now, isn't that awesome? So there, there is no doghouse for Jim this week. It's already done. Anything else? Anything else is just a, you know, icing on the cake. Um, Nicole, FYI, to get him back, Father's Day, he needs this thing of golf clubs called irons. And we were, we were, and, and it's legitimate. We were out, we were out Friday and he was starting to swing his club down and the head came off. It didn't even wait till it hit the ball. It came off. It was, I've never seen it. <laughs> well, it's nice that he can give you a hint. <laughs> All right, but seriously, we are going to continue this morning in, in the book of Isaiah. Last week, Al walked us through chapter 23. And, and what we saw there was this power of influence and the spread of sin through this influence. The people of the world were looking to Tyre and Sidon for the culture and this acceptable, normal behavior. Um, so, Wednesday I shared with our community group that I, you know, I never really thought about it until 2001. Colleen and I were, were prepping. You did months of prep before you went on a short-term mission. And we were going to Egypt, and, and the guy that was prepping us said, I want you to give you an idea as you're getting ready to go. The people of Egypt only know about Americans through MTV. And, and that's what they think, no matter who you are. And, and of course, this was back in the day when MTV played music videos. Um, I'm not sure what they do now, but I heard they don't. Um, but so these Egyptians were, you know, the, of course, the younger ones, and they would tell, I guess, the older ones, but the younger ones would see the clothing, they'd see the language, they'd see all that, and they thought that was normal for Americans, whether you were a rapper in New York or a farmer in Wisconsin. That was the way you dressed. Um, so it, it was real nice. So I loved it when Al talked about the influence that Hollywood has out on the world, because you see that now. It pushes its idea of culture out to the world to set these new norms. And an example of that is you see that in commercials today, right? You do. I mean, before 2020 and the pandemic and the riots, of social justice, companies, I don't know if you noticed this, but they would use neutral looking actors that could be used in both English and you know Spanish commercials. So they would just sub in the audio, no matter what it was. Now, now you look at it, it's, it's 
a mixture. It's always a biracial couple, and and they're so they're showing you. They're trying to get that influence that this is normal. Well, they're behind the times because everyone knows that's normal. You know, I mean, I've seen it in my day. I know it was tougher in the 60s and 70s, but now you see a biracial couple, it means nothing, at least as far as I'm concerned. So they're pushing that influence to try and change people's opinions, and that's good. But it's a powerful influence because we see this today. Like, for example, the actor Will Smith, he's got a son. Well, he was a assigned son at birth. Um, he goes by the name Willow Smith or it goes by the name Willow Smith, and it welcomes partners from any, any assignment at birth. I guess that's the way they say it. Um, Willow says marriage is outdated, and it's just too limiting. Um, basically, if it's limiting your ability to, to sin if, if you get married. And what does that mean? It means today that man continues to break God's given covenant. Over and over again, uh, we will learn and, and see this happen. And, and today, we have, we have learned in Isaiah that the result of this is man will pay. And today, we're going to take a look at that future payment for sin, and we're going to see who will be doing the paying. Let's pray. Jesus, when we think of you, you know, we see this, this awesome God that, that came down to earth, humbled himself to his Father, was full of obedience all the way to the cross. And then we see this picture of you raised from the dead, meeting with your disciples and getting ready after many days to go back to your Father. And you left one commandment basically meaning know my commands know my words and with them make disciples help us today to see why that's important help us to understand your call in our life we love you so much amen all right isaiah 24 let's look at this isaiah 24 and we're going to go through the the whole thing Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest. As with the slave, so with the master. As with the maid, so with her mistress. As with the buyer, so with the seller. As with the lender, so with the borrower. As with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth language. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the law, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. 
the wine mourns and the vine languishes, all the merry-hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those that drink it. The wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up and no one can enter. Here is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, for the gates are battered into ruins. Thus it shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten, as at the gleaning when the grape harvest is done. They shall lift up their voices, they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord, they shout from the west. Therefore in the east give glory to God, in the coastlands of the sea Give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth we shall hear songs of praise of glory to the righteous one. But I say, I waste away, I waste away. Woe is me, for the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal the traitors have betrayed. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitants of the earth. He who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit. And he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are open, and the foundation of the earth, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, and the earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man, it sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days they will be punished, and the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before the elders. So this morning we will see a city destroyed. And by the time Al takes us through chapter 27, we're going to see the final city that's established. And we will know it's done when that time comes by a great trumpet blast. Sorry to give away the ending, Al. Um, and, and to give you a little notes up front, what we're dealing with in 24 is not Jerusalem. So 24 and part of 25 next week, we are looking at an unnamed city. Um, in fact, looking at verses 1 through 13, we will see the Lord's harvest from a destroyed world. And he's going to show us that harvest, but he's going to take the first 12 verses to talk about the destruction. And then in verse 13, we're going to see the gleaning. In verses 14 through 16a, 14 through 16a, we see a loud song of the remnant. 
And in 16b through 20, we're going to see the sinful world is overthrown. And the final section of verses 21 through 23 is the waiting world. So let's jump in. Verses 1 through 12. 1 through 12 talk about destruction, and 13 talks about the gleaning. Now looking at this, there's a lot of scholars that I guess, I don't know how much time they spent, but they tried to research and name this unnamed city, but, but God didn't bother to name it. So, and, and I fully believe that by doing that, God wants us to focus on the message he is presenting and not to worry about things that do not matter. And in all actuality, what God is probably doing is probably naming or not naming where this is going to happen throughout a lot of cities across the world. And I really believe they're going to be experiencing the same thing when this happens. Because the influence of sin moves quickly, um, namely because the now, nowadays it's because of the Internet, right? So this city legitimately could be any city in the world. And, and why is that so? Because the Bible tells us in Matthew 7.13 that the path is wide that leads to destruction. So this could be any city in our corrupt world. But the great part, the footnote, the big footnote to remember, is that when this final crisis takes place, God already has protection in plan for his people. And we're going to hear again the song of the world, like we did in 2213. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But today basically covers the last part of that song, with we're going over the die part. In this, in this passage, we're going to see strong elements of Genesis and again of Revelation. But we are going to hear a song, and it's going to be a glorious song, sung to God, by his remnant on this earth. And as we go through this, remember, in a collapsing world, the people whose joy in the Lord is secure. So the earth devastated. As we look at this, verses 1 through 3 are bookend by the earth being desolate and utterly plundered. Um, we see in verse 1 through 3, the earth is destroyed and, and today, you've got to imagine, if you look at this, with all the hype of climate change, pollution, meteors hurling through the sky and crashing into earth, we're going to see the greatest environmental threat to the world is man in sin. That's it, folks. Man is looking to his own abilities and his own talents to rely on and he's ignoring the commandments of God and the love of God. This is the reason we see here for mass destruction. Empty or emptiness, meaningless, this sounds familiar, right? If you think back to the very beginning of the book of the Bible, um, we see we're going in reverse. Genesis 1-2 says the earth was without form, it was void. And God created the world out of nothing. And now we see the earth is returning to nothingness. And out of a thing I still can't imagine, if you know our earth, if we see it, 
God is going to twist the surface as if it was nothing, and he's going to scatter the inhabitants. That's just something to take a note on and just imagine later as you're in a quiet time the destruction that will take place. And then verse 2 shows us something that we've seen before. We've actually kind of seen a hint of this in the beginning of chapter 3 of Isaiah, right? Isaiah, through God, is showing us these pairs that are contrasted, and they're showing us both sets. The people, the priest, all of this, mistress and, and, the, and the maid, to show us that no one's getting by on their own merit. And then verse 3, much like verse 1, it, it doesn't speak of what so much God will do, but it's talking to us about what the earth is going to endure. Utterly plundered is used here in a specific sense of someone carrying off all the spoil. You could say here, by looking at this, God is, is removing everything. He's starting from scratch to build his new city, and, and the people there will focus on him. One, one thing we know for sure is man's sin is being communicated throughout the whole world. And, and right now, this is so apropos to be going through this now, man's sin, you can consider, is the deadliest contagion known to mankind. The deadliest. Now, verses 4 through 6, we're going to see the destruction continued and sin and the curse. So after verses 1 and 3, we see what God will do to the earth. And here in verse 4, we see the result. The earth is mourning and it's withering under God's destruction. So we are moving from the earth and its suffering. We're moving to the cause. And we see that in the highest people of the earth languish. This is the upper class, the ones that are suffering along with the earth. And this is setting us per up perfectly as we move into verse 5. In verse 5, defiled, it's used with a strong meaning. And you could say the same as like pollute. The earth has been defiled by its people. You say, how has the earth been defiled? What happened? God tells us through Isaiah, chapter 5, three things. We have transgressed the laws. We disobeyed. We crossed over from obedience in Christ to self-pleasure at all cost. It's, it's us saying, my needs are first. Once they're met, you guys can do whatever you want to. But my needs come first. Then you guys figure it out. Think it have it be the dream while you're on this earth. So man refused to live by divine revelation and, and obey God and his word. Number two, man has broken the everlasting covenant. Now God gave us this covenant through Abraham. It was a good deal for all the nations, not just, not just the Israelites through Abraham, right? And a covenant, like we've always taught here, it's not like a contract. We don't have a say in it. It doesn't get to be renegotiated every couple of years. 
Um, God sets the parameters, and we have to obey it. But man has excluded God and has been changing God's covenant and been negotiating with, with man, right? So it's like we do not go to God. We go to like-minded people, and we change God's commands and, and to fit what our needs are, right? Because God hasn't changed a thing, but the morals of man reflect the influence of man. And, and the thing is, we have to sit there and say, well, you know, it's okay if we accept this, um, because people are already doing it, and they're not being smoked, right? God's just not coming down saying, boom. So it's got to be okay. And in fact, if the people we look to as influencers, if they're doing it, it's got to be okay. I mean, everyone I like on Instagram is doing this. It's got to be okay, right? But it's not good. It's in opposition to God's word. And, but then you come back and you say, you know what? That was probably for a later time. God didn't mean to be this harsh. He didn't mean for anything to be this harsh. It's okay. It's okay if amongst us men, we move the goalpost a little bit so we can be a little bit more inclusive of other people's thoughts and opinions. After all, right? All roads lead to heaven? No, that's wrong. Three, the breaking of the covenant. This is a deeper sin. This is deeper than sinning or disobeying. It means we know the requirements. We know what we're supposed to do, but we set them aside. We set them aside and ignore God's covenant relationship and life. It means we have refused to live in fellowship with God. In Genesis 17.2, Genesis 17.2, God told Abraham he was to walk blameless before him. And in Genesis 26.5, God says Abraham was blessed because of this. He says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, he was blessed. This means Abraham learned and understood what to do under his relationship with God. He made sure his people knew and obeyed. And through God's covenant, we received what? We received the promise of Jesus. And we see the strong majority of the world today refuses refused to live by God's law, even though they know Jesus and they know he's the promise. Verse 6, this, this verse completes the thought pattern of 4 through 6. Verse 4 dealt with the earth and its people languishing, mourning, and wilting. And verse 5 told us why. The people refused to be obedient and chased after their own pleasure. And verse 6 gives us the final diagnosis. Here in this passage, God is not breaking the covenant, but he is providing, he's providing that curse that comes as a part of this covenant because his people broke it. Leviticus 26, 23 through 25. Leviticus 26 
23 and 25 says, And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. In these passages and passages like this, God promises, and he promised a way back to him through repentance if they chose to live otherwise. And, and let me give you a sneak peek at the end of this. There's no way back. There is no way back in this passage. And if you look ahead to the end, you see there's a pit waiting for them in their future. And most passages you read in this, except the flood and the second advent that he comes, um, there's a way back, but not this one. Not this one. We, we don't see that way back. God is not offering a prophet to come and show the people the way. And in those passages, the people that have been punished, they're so grateful to God. They're so grateful that he's brought this prophet and, and they brought a word and they're able to follow it until they decide, you know what? We've outlived this prophet's usefulness. We're back in our city. We're back and protected. Let's live our own best life now and let's kill the prophet. And that was repeated over and over again. The good news we see here, though, is we will have some relatives survive. Because we read here that all the inhabitants of the earth are scorched. But then we see a few survive. Uh, the funny thing I read this week, I couldn't believe it, is there was Bible scholars arguing over the use of that word, whether it actually meant burn people or God burned with anger. To me, it's like, does that really matter? It's like the argument, hey, what's the best way to be obliterated? I mean, uh, yeah. The good news is we see a few people are left in this world. And I don't know how far we are away from this passage, but one thing Colleen and I always tell people um, that I picked up from her a long time ago after we started having kids is start praying for them now. Not only pray for your kids, pray for their spouse and their kids. And, and after reading this, start praying for generations after that. Because the thing is, we don't want to have any on the earth at this time anyway. We don't want any of our relatives there, but if they are, we want them to be in this remnant. We want them to be alive. We don't want to say, this little pile of ash is, is our great-great-great-great-grandson, Timmy. We don't want to do that at all. We want them to be alive and in heaven. And prayer now is a great way for that. And this remnant surviving, this is a great picture of what it was like in Noah, right? The earth's inhabitants were taken out, and this remnant were on this boat, 
Everyone else was drowned except this tiny few. And in Genesis 6, 5 through 8, Genesis 6, 6 5 through 8 says, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Sounds familiar. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creepy things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So we need to pray that our generations of family always find favor in the Lord. Because Noah easily could have been wiped out too, if you think about it. The people of that day were choosing the easy things of this life. They were choosing the easy lifestyle, and they ignored God and His law, and they lived for pleasure. It would have been easy for Noah. Can you imagine the derision he probably received for construction on this boat around nowhere or water? It's like, what did he use to tow that? Where are you going with that? Um, and he could just caved in and been accepted by the world, but he chose to obey God. And we're still going through the destruction passages, but now we're going to focus on the fall of the city. In verse 7, says, and one thing to preface going through these verses 7 through 12, is I, I do, cannot do justice to the Hebrew that Isaiah wrote here, but I can tell you there are 15 lines in verses 7 through 12, 15 of them, and the sound intended to be heard during this, this is wild. It's the sound of a hammer blow that's destroying the city, the way it's set up. The way they did this was magnificent. And it gives us this picture of this city coming to ruins. And I can tell you where these are. And when you read this section later, you can either have a, the sound effect yourself or you can make it as you go. But they are, in verses 7a, there's two lines. 7b through, through 9, we have six lines. And then verse 10, there's two lines. So if you're counting with your fingers, we just maxed out. There's 10. Verse 11, there's three lines. And then verse 12, there's two more lines. And these all have that, that horrific sound of a hammer destroying the city. Verse 7, the wine mourn and the vine languishes. The party atmosphere of the city shows us what was important to it. What the inhabitants loved was this party atmosphere. And the one thing God is showing us is the dependence of this people and alcohol to great extent. No doubt other things as we move forward in this life, but it was dependent on everything but God. The ideas we are seeing in this people is, is they are gaining this will to live, not from God, not from their creator, but from the created. 
and 7 tells us the wine mourns and the vine languishes. We saw a similar verse, a similar passage Isaiah gave us in verse 4, right? The earth mourns and withers. So sin brought the curse on the earth, and now, right now, there is no more strong drink to get through the pain caused by the judgment. This lifestyle created by man and seeking early satisfaction has ended. All the merry-hearted have sighed note with the knowledge that this is no more. Verse 8 tells us that the band has stopped playing. The people, not having their needs met, have stopped partying. And in verse 9, we see that even the strong drink gives the people no pleasure. The drink is really bad, and I will not use any other alcohol manufacturers to say I know, but the drink is really bad, and it does not cause anyone to want to sing anymore, but they are not going to stop drinking this bitter, horrible substance because they're searching for that altered state they're normally in. Amos, in Amos 6, 1 through 8, Amos 6, 1 through 8, is a very similar passage, and it talks about those living at ease and treating themselves in the very best way, in the very best way. And, and it also tells them what's in store for them when they do this. Verse 10 paints a very rough picture major sin, and now no protection. We know how evil Sodom was, right? I mean, and this unnamed city is no doubt just as rough. And now the people have no drink, and there is no happiness, so it's going to get a lot rougher for the people there. Lot was able, we read, to at least shut the doors and allow for some protection. This one in this city, right now, there is no protection. They cannot gain access to anything. So there the, will be the fear as people cannot escape, and life there will be a very, very scary thing. In verse 11, we see people crying out for the wine they once had that has now failed them. They're walking the streets, unable to gain access to home, and they're only seeking... Still, with all this, they're only seeking what they once knew, and they are not seeking God. All gladness is banished, it has been lost, and it will never come back again in this form to this people. Verse 12 tells us that the gates are battered, so the idea is destruction and now no defenses. And this serves as a perfect bookend that we saw in verse 7. A perfect bookend. And 7's opening line tells us that life in the city was meaningless with no wine and now with no defenses, showing us that life in this manner is impossible. Verse 13, the gleaning. We start verse 13 with the word for. This gives us a look back over the preceding situation and the statements of total destruction in 1 through 3 and 7 through 12 surrounded 
by the survival of a few in 4 through 6. And we get the picture in verse 13 that the beatings have begun. And I wonder, going through this, and it's just me wondering, um, if right now the people on earth are seeing the events of Revelation chapter 6 taking place. That's just mine. Because we know there a few will survive also. So, in verses 14 through 16a, we get the song of the remnant. The song of the remnant. The gleaning of verse 13 are that they, in verse 14, that lift up their voices. The few that were left unsmoked, in verse 6, sing for joy. Now, to get a good idea of these words and what they mean, we need to understand the definition of them, right? So basically, we could read verse 14 like this. The people that remained after what everything they've gone through um, and they survived because they belonged to God, so they raised their voices. And it wasn't like hearing our worship, our worship team. These people raised their voices and their only concern was to raise them, raise them very, very loud. If you've ever been in a sporting contest or, or won anything and you're celebrating, you don't care what it sounds like. You are so thrilled you're yelling at the very loudest you can yell. And this is the picture here. Their voices are very loud and they're praising God with everything that was in them. And if you can even stop to imagine what it's going to be like then, you understand exactly what they're doing. And in verse 15, Isaiah is encouraging them to give glory to God and to continue. So it's, it's like a picture of a conductor. The West starts praising. Isaiah is like, East, now you. Now you islands and coastlands. Everyone, start praising God. It's the ultimate, ultimate gathering of people who've come from all parts of the world to see and praise God. It's a picture we saw earlier in Isaiah 2, 2 through 4. And that says, It shall come to pass in the later days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between nations, he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears in the pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The nations that bring their glory to God, it's also a picture of Revelation 21, 24. It says, by its light will the nations walk, 
and the kings of the earth will bring their glory to it. Amazing. In 16a, we see the total focus of God's people is not, is not the created, but the creator as they sing songs of praise of, to the glorious one. It's kind of like we do on Sunday mornings, but we'll get to do this and we'll do it louder and we'll do it forever. And later in 16, we get a picture of Isaiah seeing the end. And this is very much like he did in chapter 21, verses 3 through 4. Verses 16b through 20. The sinful world is overthrown. Isaiah looked for this time of praising God. He looked for it. Because remember, he saw God on the throne. But now he also saw the incredibly horrid picture of the destruction of the world and what it was going to be like. He's, and we're going to see here that there is no escape for the wicked, none. And Isaiah knows just how horrible it's going to be. And you can say that Isaiah feels for these damned people in much the way, same way that he felt for himself when he stood before the throne of God in verse in chapter 6, when he was before God's throne, he understands what I can only describe as the incredible power of God. He witnessed that. Something we take for granted, and it's something I don't know if we can ever fully understand as we move through this life what our requirements are and then how we respond to them. I, I can tell you, we do not fully understand we take it for granted, and imagine if we did understand even the basics of God's power and what he demands. I know one thing's for sure. I know one thing is definitely be sure. We would dedicate more time in our day than we currently do. We would be getting to know God. We would be worshiping him and praying for all the loved ones we had that just don't get it. And why? But because imagine we have this great cloud of witnesses all throughout the Bible, people like Moses, like Jesus, like Paul, who spent a lot of time in communion with God, praying to him, listening to him, knowing him, and right now they are worshiping him forever. Because of this and his knowledge, Isaiah is saying, woe is me. And he feels he is wasting away knowing the woe that is on this people. He had such compassion for what he was seeing. It's incredible. And then he repeats this phrase we've seen. For the traitors have betrayed. With betrayal, the traitors have betrayed. In English, we see this. We go, you know what? He's stuttering or he's overdoing it. But remember, like we talked about before, in this, in Hebrew, it is a very powerful and important point if it's repeated. And Isaiah wants you to know so much this that he repeats it. We saw this phrase before in 21.2. And again, it's a picture of Babylon or, or the world being overthrown. And this phrase means while God is performing his judgment, the evil 
the immoral, the dishonest, the lovers of money, and all the other lovers of this unreliable world will continue to ignore the basics of the signs telling them they are damned. Remember, we have a perfect picture of this in Revelation, right? We have a perfect picture of this. In 1621, in 1621 it says, And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. This is not poetry. This is not fiction. This is what's gonna happen. Imagine, you are so gone in this life that you see a hundred pound hailstone take out your neighbor, or take out anybody for that matter, and you understand it's from God. You understand that. You're not saying, gee, what happened? It's, not, it's climate change. You know exactly who this is from. It's from God. And you curse at him for doing it, but you're not repenting. Folks, that's unimaginable to me. That's unimaginable to me. That if I saw the power of a hundred, imagine a hundred pound hailstone coming down and striking somebody, they would be nothing. It would be the speed. Talk to Al later about what the speed might look like of a, of a hailstone coming down from the upper atmosphere. It wouldn't be coming at a couple miles an hour and then hitting you, it would take you out. And they see that, and their response is to curse God. They know he's there, think about that. They know who did it, and they're cursing him. This is a people so far gone, and it's making Isaiah lean, or wasting away, because he knows they're coming, and he knows what people's reactions are, and he knows what their judgment's going to be. It's painful for him. And that judgment and everything comes in 17 through 8a. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon the inhabitants of the earth. And they're not by chance. These are deliberate to catch these people for final punishment. 18b through 20, these verses actually match the statement of destruction from verses 1 through 3. If this is the repeating for emphasis, Isaiah is sharing on a worldwide destruction that's being caused by man's rebellion. 18 starts off with the four, the word for, explaining why the judgment is inescapable. 17 through 8 tells us that the enemies of God will be trapped and unable to escape. As the same we saw in the flood passage. We will see it in 18b. And it says, For the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth shake. The windows of heaven are open. And it's not unintentional that God uses this. God uses that phrase to show us who's in charge. Who's in charge of this judgment that's taking place on the earth? It's him. Now we see the earth shatter and it's utterly broken apart. What is left, what could be left, is shaken and just 
violently shaken. Isaiah gives the example of the earth walking like a drunken man. And with these people he's talking to, it's in this unnamed city, they were probably so good at it, they understood exactly what he was talking about as he gave them that example. And in 20, ultimate doom is coming. And the sobering phrase has got to hit everyone. It says, it's going down and it will not rise again. All throughout the scripture, we see promises of restoration. God will punish and then restore. Not this time. Not this time. God is ending it. No more, no more chances. It's like the parent who's got the three. It's over. It's over. Now we're going to move to the final section, verses 21 through 23, the waiting world. 21, on that day, the Lord will punish. Here is that hidden meaning Isaiah is telling everyone who reads this passage. He's saying, ready, pay attention. Everything you have read and heard, weigh it out. Weigh it out and then take the appropriate action. We have seen in the previous 20 verses, the word earth was used 16 times. And now it's exchanged, for the focus is now on the powers of heaven and earth. It says the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. The word for heaven links us to the use of heaven in verse 18. And this ensures we understand that God is now dealing with all of creation. All of creation. No matter where it is, all the guilty are going to be dealt with at this time. It's a comprehensive settlement over their lack of obedience. And thus will be done again through all of creation. So imagine what this will look like. All that God has created, not just human beings, although we're weird enough looking already, but all the spiritual creation he has made will be together and be judged. Now if you've read what some of these creatures look like, this will be a sight. And you'll have to forgive me, but I've got to confess the first image I imagine would look like was from the 70s Star Wars bar scene. But this will be on major steroids from that. Everyone gathered together. All these pictures of the created. All gathered together and all punished. Everyone. Wow. God, in his power, is very impressive with how this picture of design, with this picture of design sovereignty, everything is put there. If you look at this, how calm is it? I mean, you could skip through this. It's just 22 words that describe this very powerful statement. Um, this is a devastating and epic scene. It's just amazing, and, and we could skip over it so easy if we didn't sit there and take our time and go through this. Verses 22 through 23. 
It was interesting as I was I was wrapping up verse 23. I you know I for many reasons I like to have some music playing, some worship songs while I'm going through it, and this was so cool. Um, Fernando Ortega, um, one of my favorite people to listen to. Um, a song he played called Our Great God. And in the chorus it says, Hallelujah, glory be to our great God. You know, that was I was going through 23 at this time. I just had to stop and worship. It spoke of all creation singing praises to our great God. Simply amazing. And then on the other hand, we see the judgment of the guilty. They will be placed into a pit or a dungeon. And this is so consistent because thousands of years later, as we're looking in the book of Revelation in chapters 9 and chapters 11 and chapter 20, time and time again we see this pit mentioned, right? Before the final punishments take place. It will be no cakewalk, right? Because we see in chapter 9 the angel comes in at God's commands and opens the door of this pit and he releases those locusts that won't affect God's people, but they're going to torment God's enemies for months. And as he opens this pit, it's like he is opening a blast furnace with the smoke that's covering the sky. So that's what, that's what the guilty are going to hang out in until they go to their final punishment. So I gotta say it, right? The guilty will be going like from the fine pan into the fire. See, I need Sal back up here to work the drum. Um, then in verse 23, we're gonna see this great picture given to us of the new Jerusalem. And this is in Revelation 21, 22 through 26. And it says, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for the sun nor moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and their gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring in, it into glory and the honor of the nations. The meeting of, of Moses and the elders of that day, Isaiah brings as a fulfillment. In Exodus 24, 9-11, we see that Moses and 70 of his elders and God commune together. And all they saw was his feet. Now this is a picture of them being brought into that glory and being with God forever. What a powerful passage and, and so much more depth than meets the initial read. That's why it's so important as we go through the Bible, we read it over and over again with an open mind so we can, we can get that prayerful, part out of it. And the message we seem to be getting over and over again as we go through this is to know God, is to really as believers know God, his words, and his commandments. 
And therefore, I'm going to urge you to do that so you can build your spiritual strength. You're going to need it. If you didn't think so a year and a half ago, you do now. You're going to need it. And I'm not saying this is a good idea to do. God commands you to build your spiritual strength, and it's not an option. To quote John Piper, John Piper, one of those guys I don't really like because he makes me so guilty every time I listen to him. He says, take the truths of God and day by day focus on them. He's saying day by day focus on them. Preach these to yourself daily until your mind sings with the truths of God. And we do that because then when failure hits us, disaster, pain, suffering we go through, they hit you, you will know how to correctly respond. You won't take to social media. You won't broadcast it like it's a badge. You will know you're growing in this life. You'll know you're growing, and you'll seek God and grow in that strength. And then, when glory after glory after glory comes, you will also know how to respond. Let's pray. God, we see you in this passage, and it's intense. We see you no fooling, no more promises. We see the end here. And you showed it to Isaiah, and it still hasn't happened yet. It's still in the future. May we grow from this. May we, may we understand the pain Isaiah was going through as he saw this. Because he longed for your day, but he saw the magnitude of what you're going to do. Help us not to just take this in and go about our day. Help us to really see the power that you provide in this. Help us take it to heart. Help us to seek to know you more, understand your commands, and obey them at all cost. Amen.